Welcome to BrainBeat, a podcast series featuring discussions with experts on brain health and function, brought to you by the National Academy of Neuropsychology Foundation. I'm Dr. Heidi Rossetti. Most people are familiar with Alzheimer's disease, the most common form of dementia, but the second most common type of progressive dementia is Lewy body dementia, also called LBD. LBD has several features that make it distinct from other forms of dementia and uniquely contribute to caregiver burden. Our guest today is Helen Bundy Metzger, an LBD caregiver, support group facilitator, peer mentor, and healthcare advocate with a great deal of personal experience to draw upon. Join us for our conversation about navigating and caregiving in the world of Lewy body dementia. All right, Helen, thanks for being here. We're going to talk about the core features of Lewy body dementia in a moment, but what was your knowledge of LBD prior to a family member receiving the diagnosis? Was it something you were aware of? Well, thank you, Dr. Rossetti, for welcoming me today. No, Lewy body dementia was not in our or anybody else's uh, radar. Let me start by explaining that my family's journey began with my father beginning in 1987 when he started exhibiting symptoms with mild Parkinsonianisms and he complained of short-term memory loss. And as I would discover kind of several years later, the medical community had not defined the diagnostic criteria for Lewy body dementia. So as close as we got to an accurate diagnosis was an unusual phenotype of Parkinson's disease and then separately dementia. It wasn't until 1996, the year he passed away, that the first diagnostic criteria for LBD was published. And to be honest, we really thought his diagnosis was a one-off, just a random occurrence in the family. So we weren't really following what the medical community was doing. And so it wasn't until the early 2000s when my sister started exhibiting symptoms and then she sought evaluation that we became aware of the term Lewy body dementia. Wow. Okay. So very intimate experience with LBD to say the least. Do you want to start by kind of sharing just your sort of general experience with LBD? I'd be happy to. You know, the reality is it wasn't just my father and I've certainly mentioned my sister, but I've lost three family members to this disease. So it started with dad, but I've lost two of my siblings to Lewy body. My sister, whose symptoms broke through in her early 50s, and then hers spanned 13 years. And then my youngest brother, who was in his late 40s, and he progressed through the disease for 10 years. And of those three, I was primary caregiver and healthcare advocate for two of them, my father and my sister. But let me start with my dad. So as his disease unfolded, Although he was bothered by the Parkinson's symptoms, they were relatively well-managed with treatment. But the neuropsychiatric symptoms quickly became our biggest concern. My mother started complaining of dad roaming the house at night. On the rare occasions that he did sleep, he was thrashing around in bed and hollering. And during the day, he was threatening her. So I started you know, spending nights at the house so that I could kind of assess and see what was going on. And he would come out and ask me if I'd come to visit the little people with him. And during the day when I was at work, he would call me and tell me about the ghouls that were coming out of the walls or the government officials that were going to haul him away and then questioning who is this woman in the house? 
because he didn't recognize my mother as his wife. But after several weeks of going back and forth with his doctor about how this was unfolding, there was a day that he literally pulled me aside and whispered, do you think I ought to buy a gun? And at that point, I knew that he and my mother were no longer safe and that it was it was necessary for us to demand that his physician really escalate his care. So unfortunately, he ended up spending the next three weeks in a private psychiatric facility. And the end result was we were told that he could never return home. And oh, by the way, you need to immediately find a long-term care facility for him. So while he was in the psych unit, I stepped in and took the reins as his primary caregiver, his healthcare advocate, and his power of attorney, as my mother couldn't fulfill those roles because she had already suffered a catastrophic brain injury when we were kids. So it wasn't as if I had all the resources to just turn around and put my life completely on hold. I ended up having to resign my full-time job. I tightened my family's budget as best I could. And I just tried to get through every day managing my parents and my young family. But as difficult as this period with my father was, you know, all those years of not truly knowing what we were contending with, trialing medications that profoundly worsened many of his symptoms, and making decisions based on little to no solid information from his medical providers. And obviously, we had little to no referrals to support services. I kind of came out the other end learning many lessons and knowing that there had to be better ways to handle these types of crises. So when my sister subsequently asked me to step in in the same roles that I provided for dad, she and I partnered together and we forged a really different path. I call it my coming out of the dark ages because mm-hmm. it was a long span. It's, you know, it's been over 30 years. So if I look back over these 30 years of dealing with this disease, I look back at my time with dad. Now, that was the mid 80s through the mid 90s. And I certainly do refer to them as the dark ages because it was years of nothing but crisis management. So like I previously mentioned, we didn't have a name for the illness. That slowly came out after the diagnostic criteria was published in 1996. And with no name for the illness, his physicians had no clinical path to reference. So to treat him was very difficult. There were no medications at that time that had been developed to treat LBD's cognitive symptoms. Today, those commonly used are known as cholinesterase inhibitors, and people may know them as denepazil or aracinct, rivastigmine or exelon, or galantamine. And they were developed and were being approved for use with those in Alzheimer's during the same timeframe. But it would be many years before clinical trials would evidence the efficacy of those drugs in Lewy body. So then we move on to the psychiatric symptoms and how they were treating them at that time. What was available was what we would call first-generation antipsychotics, such as Haldol. But treatment with those class of medications caused many LBD patients to suffer significant side effects, as my dad did. But we were fortunate because many others actually suffered fatal side effects. Even today, there's a new generation called the second-generation antipsychotics 
And they continue to be prescribed very cautiously with individuals with Lewy as they are very, very sensitive to medications, not only the antipsychotics, but others, even over-the-counter meds in some cases. So other areas that I believe uh, have improved in this time frame would really be the availability of Lewy body dementia specific information, and we have better access to patient and caregiver support services. So during the past three decades, the other items that really have improved things has been that the widely expanded evolution of the internet. So we can get out there and get information. And then the growth of organizations, support organizations like the Lewy Body Dementia Association. But we still have a very long way to go. So if people aren't aware, LBD happens to be one of the most misdiagnosed of all the dementias. And although there are currently 1.4 million people in the U.S. living with the disease, many in the medical community, I've heard it time and time again, refer to LBD as the most common dementia you've never heard of. Statistics rate it as the most misdiagnosed dementia, and according to the Lewy Body Dementia Association, it can take an average of three doctors and more than 18 months to correctly diagnose the disease. So many doctors fail to recognize the signs of Lewy because what people don't recognize, it kind of falls across the spectrum. It's somewhere they say, oh, it's a little bit of Alzheimer's, it's a little bit of Parkinson's. So some of the symptoms may mimic, you know, the short-term memory loss. So that, that might point to Alzheimer's. But then you see a movement disorder that mimics Parkinson's. So it tends to muddy the waters when you're diagnosing. Caregiver cost estimates, it's known as the most expensive dementia. Researchers, actually some of them that I've worked with at the University of California, San Francisco, analyzed 100% of the 2015 California Medicare for Fee Service data. They took all the common forms of dementia, and they had tried to identify the direct healthcare costs and how frequently did people utilize those services. So they covered things like the number of physician and emergency room visits, how many hospitalizations, how many times did people take an ambulance trip to the hospital? And the totals represented that the cost of care was highest for those with Lewy body dementia. So it's been quite a 30-year journey. You've taken a lot on your shoulders and clearly learned so much. Along the way, as you were kind of recounting your father's experience, you did touch on numerous kind of features that are unique to Lewy body. So I think maybe to briefly define Lewy body for our listeners, this is a disease associated with the abnormal buildup of a protein called alpha-synuclein in the brain. So these deposits are called Lewy bodies, and they develop in nerve cells in brain regions involved in thinking, movement, behavior, as well as mood. This protein is also associated with Parkinson's disease and can also be seen in Alzheimer's disease. And in turn, as you just pointed out, they share some features that can make the diagnosis challenging. So would you like to talk a little bit more or run down kind of the common features families should be on alert for? Well, I'd be happy to, but first I'd like to let people know at the end of our presentation, we do provide links to the Lewy Body Dementia Association's website and to specific resources, including the comprehensive 
Lewy Body Dementia Symptoms Checklist that can be downloaded, reviewed, and completed by family and then used and shared with the physician. But in the meantime, let me give you a brief overview of what a physician looks for when diagnosing the disease. For diagnostic purposes, they look for symptoms in five different domains. One is cognitive impairment, the neuropsychiatric features like hallucinations and delusions, motor features like the Parkinsonism, autonomic nervous system dysfunction, and I'll go into that a little later, and then the sleep disorders that are prevalent in Lewy body. Then to diagnose, and this is how they do it, it's either probable or possible, they determine whether the person's symptoms fall under core clinical features or supportive clinical features. So under the core features, I first look for fluctuating cognition. And that really is include pronounced variations in attention and alertness, the Parkinsonism, they look for recurrent visual hallucinations, and then REM sleep behavior disorder, also known as RBD. And they look at it not only currently occurring, but in many people, they can go back decades having that problem. And if you're not aware of it, what we refer to is REM sleep is a period of when we sleep and we dream, but we're normally paralyzed. But in people with Lewy and in actually some other movement disorders, including Parkinson's, they break through that paralysis and they scream and they holler and they flail. In many cases, they jump out of bed. So there's concern about injury to not only themselves, but the person cohabitating the bed with them. So with supportive features, those things like repeated falls, why would those be occurring? Fainting or other episodes of non-responsiveness, severe autonomic dysfunction. And that is kind of something people always look at me funny about. What is that? Well, those are the things we don't see. There are things like the autonomic nervous system controls all our organ function. So things like urinary incontinence, chronic and sustained for years constipation, temperature regulation. We can't control if we get cold or if we get hot, orthostatic hypotension or hypertension, where the blood vessels are not constricting appropriately. The brain is not sending the signals to the blood vessels to constrict so our blood pressure can plummet, or they tighten and constrict too much, and then it skyrockets. So there's also features like excessive daytime sleepiness, loss of sense of smell, which was my sister's first symptom at the age of 35, hallucinations in all of the five senses, delusions, apathy, and the list goes on to include depression. And then finally, sensitivity to antipsychotic medications. So the one qualifying statement I want to make in all of this, and that's something I'd like to direct to the physicians, just because an individual is under the age of 65 and historically most dementias show up 65 and above, whether they're under that age or even under the age of 50, don't assume it can't be Lewy body dementia. Young onset is truly not that rare in Louis, as my family evidences with two young onset siblings. And clearly multifaceted disease for sure. And yes. there is there is no one diagnostic test that can confirm a DLB diagnosis at this point. That's really only a postmortem autopsy. And there are several components that go into having a thorough clinical work. 
would you like to talk about what you consider to be an ideal work? Well, I've had a fair amount of experience at that because it really does depend on who you see. You know, if we look at what most people do is they see their general practice doctor known as their primary care physician. And that physician is normally family practice, general practice, maybe an internist, but they're not a specialist in the brain. But then others will see a neurologist, but there's a wide spectrum of neurologists too. Some are very general practice and have knowledge on many topics, but are not specialists in diseases of the brain, again, specific to dementia. And that would then move into physicians, neurologists that have taken advanced fellowship time to either specialize in movement or memory disorders. And then there are others, a psychiatrist may even be sought out initially due to the psychiatric symptoms. So it also depends on where you go. You may just go to your general physician's office. You may go to a small specialty clinic or a large specialty clinic. And you may end up at a research medical center. So, you know, the amount of equipment that they have to evaluate, the amount of specialists, the amount of time given tends to vary. Neurological evaluation is very, very important to look for physical symptoms. Um, When the physicians start looking at Parkinsonian symptoms, they look at how people walk. They look at their arm swing, um, the length of their steps, their stability. They look at their fine and their gross motor, you know, can they grip strong? What is their eye-hand coordination like? And it it goes on. They've got many, many tests that that they can provide. Then we look at cognitive screening. And I always recommend because it, you know, I look back at my loved one's medical histories, comprehensive neuropsychological evaluations are really, really important because I know from having read them and having met with neuropsychologists, that what it provides is insight is which functions are being lost and which areas of the brain are being affected. The larger centers, now many places have availability of MRI scans, and they're normally used to rule out other diseases because the other diseases tend to cause more significant detectable brain changes. But for kind of standard right now, what people are looking towards to help them make an assessment and rule out other diseases is what we term a DAT scan. And a DAT scan actually will help determine the loss of dopamine receptors in the brain. It's under the basis of an SPECT or a PET scan, but it also requires delivery of material um, through the bloodstream that will bind with those receptors. And then now there's additional biomarker testing that's just been adopted in the last few years. And that is actually taking what we call a skin punch because they can determine uh, deposits of alpha-synuclein in your skin, a lumbar puncture to see if there are high accumulation of Lewy bodies in the spinal fluid, a cardiac MIBG, which can determine if there is cardiac denervation of the heart, and then a sleep study. A sleep study is very important to determine if there is a REM behavior disorder, but I've been privy to research that is ongoing and there's more on the horizon coming up. Definitely a lot of progress for sure. So Helen, what are the most common issues that families reach out to you for in your support groups? There's a lot of topics, obviously, that we cover. 
But through my work with the Lewy Body Dementia Association, you know, obviously I'm a support group facilitator and I'm also a support services volunteer known as a Lewy Buddy. I've also a trained peer mentor and then I've also trained with the Alzheimer's Association. So the topics that family most frequently ask about really begin at a very grassroots level. For example, I'm seeing, you know, I, I'm going to put myself in their role. So they might come to me and say, I'm seeing these behaviors or I'm seeing a physical symptom in my loved one. And I don't understand how they could come on so suddenly. And it's like, in many cases, they may seem to come on suddenly, maybe after a severe illness or they've just had surgery. But if we really talk about it, and kind of do some fact-finding, they start looking back and seeing subtle changes that preceded the obvious breakthrough of the symptoms. And it could have been many years before. Frequently, though, the most significant issues that come up, though, truly do encompass responding to the psychiatric symptoms and sensitivity to medications. When the person with Louis starts talking about their hallucinations or delusions, most family members attempt to reorient them and tell them what they're seeing isn't there. Or if it's a type of delusion known as Capgras syndrome, where a trusted person might appear to be an imposter, they demand to be recognized for who they are. Like, I'm your wife. What do you mean you don't know who I am? And so I get a lot of pushback initially. It truly, now there, I've got to qualify this. If you have a sense that your loved one has insight to these behaviors, then it might be all right for a while to say, hey, honey, it really is me. You know, you're safe. All is good. And so the person might agree. Oh, yes, you truly are my wife. Or the hallucination is, no, there really isn't 20 other people in the house tonight. But if you find that as time goes on, the insight is lost then you need to learn strategies to be able to respond. We kind of talk about redirecting the individual or we talk about a sensitive topic known as therapeutic lying. I prefer to call it fiblets. Because what you want to do... <laughs> like that. <laughs> fiblets is kind of my word, yes. So we really want to create a safe and comforting environment. The technique first that we recommend is first you validate the emotion that the person is experiencing. It could be fear, it can be jealousy, it can be anger. And then we try to redirect them to another topic or place, or you might even consider removing yourself from the room, from the scenario, step away, take a breath, give it a few minutes, and then re-enter the room once the emotions seem to have settled down. Now, if that's not successful, then sometimes you need to just put yourself into the scenario, go along with it, and fully acknowledge what they're experiencing. So what we do is we really do try to coach them to be creative and improvise given the circumstances. Now, dealing with sensitivity to medications is a very difficult topic to address. People with Louis tend to have significant sensitivity to medications. And it varies from one Louis patient to another. So I tread very, very lightly in this area. I'm not a medical professional. So I refer to published research and to reliable medical sources for them to review. I send it on to them, have them review it, and then 
have them have a very deep discussion with the physician. The biggest challenge as of right now is there are no medications specifically approved for use in those with Lewy body. These patients are being prescribed drugs that are successful in treatment of other diseases such as Alzheimer's and either that or schizophrenia. And we have seen successful symptom relief in our population with many of these medications. But bottom line, there are not yet any medications that slow or stop the progression of Lewy. The one area that even though those are the topics that people come to me for, I always like to address one topic with them. And that is, are you prepared for the long haul of this disease? So I kind of start with, have any of the estate planning documents been prepared? You know, and that's very general, but I like to narrow it down to have powers of attorney for medical care and financial matters been drafted and has an agent been chosen who can reliably step in and manage the individual's care. So that goes to the advanced directives. Have they been discussed and prepared so that you understand your loved one's desires as the disease progresses? And I'd also like to interject now that in addition to the standard advanced directives that most of us are aware about and that kind of cover general medical concerns, I'd recommend that people also look into reviewing and completing an advanced directive for dementia. It's a great tool to start the conversation about interventions, you know, which ones someone might want at various stages of the disease, and it can really help inform the physician too. In my experience, it's really critical that the person living with Louie have the opportunity themselves to share their desires while they are early in their disease process and can truly formulate their wishes. There are additional documents that I tend to bring to their attention as time goes on, but I don't want to overwhelm them in the beginning. But I know that you had brought up a concern about what should be brought to the attention of the physician, and that truly varies. Obviously, you know, you want to have an open line of communication with the doctors about symptoms, medications, and medical intervention as the disease progresses. But I think that families need to understand that they can be an advocate for their loved one. They need to educate themselves about the disease, look into what insurance covers, right? What is available to you under your coverages of both Medicare and whatever private insurance you, you might have. Ask the physician if you can have referrals to supportive therapies such as speech, physical therapy, and occupational therapy. You know, your physician can truly be a conduit to an improved quality of life. But in many cases, it's you that has to raise the question and you have to advocate. As you were talking about, in particular, advanced directives and, and so forth, do you feel like families should go to their regular family attorney? Do you feel like it's best handled by an elder care attorney or insert other option here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's that's a very interesting question because a lot of people due to financial reasons will say, oh, I can get that document off the internet and they can download a sample of, you know, an advanced directive. I would advise, in my experience, I would advise against that. It is too generic. You really do need to sit down in front of a professional 
initially in my background, I've utilized both, both a general practice attorney, but one that knew the family extensively. And then one who was in fact an elder law specialist, because an elder law specialist can look at some of the financial aspects when completing these estate planning documents and discuss with the families, can they afford long-term care as time goes on? Or do they need to look into possible qualification for Medicaid? Now, I reside in California. So here in California, it is known as Medi-Cal. And I took that role on myself. In the time that I was unemployed, taking care of my parents, I put together their complete financial picture, which was very limited. And within two to three years, determined that we would have to qualify my father for Medi-Cal. I put all the numbers together. I researched it as best I could. And because they didn't have the finances to afford, you know, a fancy attorney, I went to our local council on aging and they were offering at that time a free one hour consultation. So brought in the documents, brought in my spreadsheets. And he said, you're on the right track. Go with it. So I I was very fortunate in that regard. Okay. And so we've talked about the importance of families educating themselves about Louis and advocating for their loved one. Mm-hmm. We also need to talk about support, right? We talked a bit yes. about the need, of course, for support from your, your healthcare team, but also social support being very important. What was it like establishing your support network? You know, my support network with my dad was very limited. It was family. You know, we came across psychiatrists and doctors who didn't know the disease. And so we really kind of just stayed within ourselves. And, you know, by the great fortune, my sister was actually a medical social worker with a degree in gerontology. So I had her intelligence and skills, and she could help steer a lot of this. But, you know, she had a full-time job plus as an executive director of a very large nonprofit. So she kind of would guide, but I did all the practical work. But with my father, and then even in the beginning stages of my sister's progression, when we determined that we needed to broaden our sphere for her, we had some real bumps in the road. You know, we started with her neurologist, who her first neurologist within her healthcare system, who funny enough, had been my father's neurologist. So there was a broad, he was kind of getting near retirement years. And there was a particular day that kind of still leaves me in horror. We had come in with a report from the regional medical center where my sister had extensive evaluation. And it had been in his possession for three weeks. He had not bothered to look at it. And we came in to discuss it with him. And he was pretty distressed because he wasn't prepared for that, even though it had been, he'd had it. And so he questioned why we were there. And I told him, and um, he says, well, I guess I better go grab that report. So he did. And it was lengthy. So I directed him to the particular section of importance. And he started verbally commenting about what he was reading. Oh, my. Oh. This is serious. Oh, my word. My My poor sister. It seems unfathomable that a physician would do that in front of the patient. Right. But he did. 
And my sister started, you could just see her stress level rising. So I grabbed her hand and kind of gave her a quick little smile and just said, it's okay. And I said, you know what, doctor, how about we come back after you've had the opportunity to truly review this report? And as we left that office, I looked at her and I said, would you like to see him again? No, I never want to see him again. And it was interesting because she, he had also referred us to his clinical nurse manager for counseling and advice. And when we came in and handed her brochures regarding Lewy body dementia, she told us that we knew more about the disease than she did. So we kind of, that is a poor experience all the way around. Certainly. But, but you know, we had more positive experiences as time went on. I'm glad to hear. (laughs) Yes. Yay. Thank goodness. It really was a moment of great relief to meet with physicians at our campus of the University of California, where we had a team surround us. From the first moment we walked in there, we were greeted positively. There was consideration if, you know, the doctor was running late. We were constantly kept abreast of how the schedule was going. But most importantly, they treated us as active members of the diagnostic and clinical team. Her neurologist there, one of the best comments he ever gave me and steered me in how I continued to care for her was keep her physically and socially engaged. And we ended up with them doing a deep dive into our family history and her specific clinical history, which is our had already preceded them by several years, and no one was watching the clock. They always just took the time necessary and guided us. And then they advised the new neurologist we went to see in our locality. And there was an ongoing back and forth exchange of what was in her best interest. So, you know, you can define a village of professionals, and those will include your primary care, the specialists, as I've previously mentioned, then supportive care therapists, and a neuropsychologist, not only for diagnostics, but also um, some actually do active counseling. But, you know, outside of the healthcare professionals, there are others that I like to kind of include in my expanded village of care. And that would include good friends, those that want to be on board, family, and in some cases, neighbors when you need support, if there's an emergency situation, a support group, absolutely a support group. Those people have lived in the trenches the same way you are day to day. Respite care providers, you know, it could be day programs. There could be a variety of things. And then certainly other professionals, as we mentioned previously, an elder law attorney or a good solid family attorney, financial planner, to look where the money is coming from over the next few years, possibly a care or case manager, and they would be either an RN or a a social worker that can help you manage things. And then I even would like to include your insurance person. You need to look at what benefits are out there for you. What's in your life insurance? Do you have long-term care insurance? Um, So you need to look at many factors with regards to that. One follow-up question to that is, what is your advice or counsel about families who express reluctance about support groups because they find it 
depressing, let's say. Okay. I've had that put to me on several occasions where I even admit that I have one or two people that say, once was enough for me. I want to, and I completely agree with this, I want to stay in the present with my loved one. I want to take it day by day, which is advisable. My advice is you plan for the future and then you put it in a drawer and then you you go day to day. But that aside, what I try to do is I always open the door to one-on-one. I absolutely believe in meeting caregivers where they're at in this journey. So in that particular case, you know, let's say I get a call from the national, um, the LBDA gets a hold of me and says, Helen, we've got a special case. We'd like you to call this person back. Here's the information. So I'll place a call to the individual. We will spend an hour in some cases, maybe even longer than that on the phone, me getting history, answering questions, and then I will refer them to their local support group, you know, wherever it may be. Those people that have expressed to me that a support group is not for them, then I offer one-on-one. It's not always, you know, I schedule it. It's not always available and not all support group facilitators do it. But I think it's critical, again, to meet the family where they're at. And then they may transition later on once they realize they need more input as to where this is going. And they need more people who understand what they're experiencing day to day. The family can be helpful to begin with, you know, where the friends can be helpful to a point, but oh my goodness, here I am. And they don't understand what I'm talking about. And these other individuals will. So it's meeting them where they're at, no matter what that encompasses, whether it be a text message, an email, or a phone call. Well, it's good to hear that there's options for people's comfort level. So there's data to show that Lewy body carries the highest caregiver burden of really all the dementias. What do you feel like are the main drivers of that in your experience? There are many factors, but what I want people to understand, what I want our listeners to really realize that Lewy body just isn't a psychiatric disorder and it's not just a movement disorder. It is truly a systemic disease. It affects multiple systems of the body. Obviously, it's a combination of cognitive, neuropsychiatric, and physical symptoms. And the physical symptoms are both outward, those that you can see, and then there are others that are invisible, right? You can see the Parkinson's symptoms, but you can't see things like orthostatic hypotension until the person hits the floor, right? They may have just eaten a meal, they stand up, their blood pressure drops, the blood plummets to their feet, and they collapse. And the first time that happens, you know, and the physician asks, are they having repeated falls? That's a red flag. That's saying, I need to watch for something. And so that's not visible to you. So families need to really be proactive in how broad Lewy body can affect their loved one. Then there's the behavioral challenges. That includes the psychiatric aspects. And while some care partners are naturally intuitive and can improvise easily when they're confronted with a confused, hallucinating, or delusioned person, most of us, there's a huge learning curve. 
And so you need to develop safe intervention skills and learn non-pharma, as we term it, non-medication strategies. But when those strategies are no longer working, you need to know when to approach the physician about medication. But there's also just kind of the basics of caregiving. You know, caregiving is a 24-7 road. There is no doubt about it. You're going to end up sleep deprived if your loved one is up, if they're acting out, if they're roaming at night. And a caregiver without adequate sleep is going to collapse themselves. You know, there are fluctuations that are inherent in Lewy body dimension. We call it the Lewy roller coaster because they can be performing and show timing and doing very, very well at certain times of the day. An hour later, they can be non-responsive. They can show up at the doctor and just chat away and all looks good. But you need to inform that physician after or before things aren't that great, doc. And then the other issues is you become the all-around manager of everything. You were trying to manage your home, your family, right? Your finances, all of your personal life, long-term care planning, plus the caregiving. So it's an exhausting journey if you don't prepare for it. We touched on this a bit already um, in terms of strategies for responding to symptoms like hallucinations, and and you just touched Mm -hmm. on the cognitive fluctuations. Is there anything else you would want to add specific to those particularly problematic symptoms that caregivers should keep in mind or, or in their toolbox? Well, you know, I was, do I say fortunate? I grew up being a caregiver, right? I grew up being a caregiver of family members with brain impairments. But most of the cases that I see, this is the first time dementia has occurred in their family. So first, I recommend that they check with their loved one's physician and see if they can offer any advice on local resources. That's really important. Then I recommend contacting the Lewy Body Dementia Association. You can look up their listing of support groups. They have a nationwide network. And then you can find the closest one to you, or you can contact, they have a, during business hours, a support services phone line. These days, for people that have internet access, still not everyone does, obviously, there are numerous webinars hosted by the LBDA and many, many of the research centers around the country, such as Mayo Clinic. And then whether you know it or not, The LBDA established Lewy Body Dementia Research Centers of Excellence throughout the country. They have fabulous webinars. And in many states, as there is here in California, there are caregiver resource centers that work to support and train and teach the family's coping strategies. And in addition, over the course of the last few years, many healthcare systems are developing caregiver support systems that provide training and outreach. But I think initially what families need to know is they need to reach out and not only educate themselves, but also the others around them that are supporting them. They need to create that broad support system that I refer to as their village. And yes, we've talked about family and we've talked about friends, but have you thought about clergy? You know, people that administer to your spiritual needs, Peer mentors. I was fortunate to be part of the Persevere study at Rush University in Chicago, where they trained me 
And I did one-on-one peer mentoring weekly for a woman out of state who was just beginning the journey with her husband. And so for four months weekly, we connected. And then there are organizations. I've already mentioned the LBDA, but the Alzheimer's Association, there are governmental programs, reach out to their local area agency on aging. They'll know what resources are available in, in your community. And AAAs, as they're known, are in every county of the United States. And then look to day programs and respite for yourself. And the other area, which a lot of people don't think of, we think of what our kids do on it. But I look at the YouTube channels. YouTube has a huge volume. Uh, Many of the medical centers put their short webinars up on YouTube, but there are other fabulous bits of information out there. And then there's also people and one, one occupational therapist who is very well known is Tipa Snow. She's highly regarded trainer and she makes things simple for family caregivers. So if you can access either Tipa's weekly freebie, a lot of her videos, you know, you do have to pay for, but she has a weekly presentation that's free to caregivers. So if you can look up Tipa Snow, that's also really helpful. That is a great tip. One common recommendation that patients and families get a lot from their providers is the importance of regular physical exercise, mental exercise, social engagement, and so on. That can be really difficult, though, to accomplish. It's easier said than done, particularly when their cognitive impairment is really advanced or if there's an apathy piece that can be really challenging. Any real-world advice on maintaining activity? It follows along kind of an arc right? You kind of presented it as they're kind of traveling along, the disease is progressing. But I'll start back. You know, I was very fortunate with my sister. She was a very socially engaged person and obviously very highly involved in the community. Um, She was an active member of her church and she sang in the choir. And after we attended, actually we attended a symposium at uh, Stanford University called Exercise in the Brain. And it was attended by clinicians, by caregivers, by people with disease. And it was absolutely proven to this day that whether you had the physical ability or mental ability to exercise, you obviously should. But even if you didn't, the caregivers should step forward and move those muscles for you. Because every time a limb gets moved, you're firing your brain. So you're reaping a benefit. So that really got my sister and I charged in. So we were fortunate. We had access to a health club and her neighbors, she could no longer drive. Her neighbors brought her in to me. And so three days a week, we exercised together and we had fun. It engaged her not only in physical activity, but she was embraced by the other people that she was you know, exercising with. And we became our own little community. But I understand that an individual who doesn't have a history of being, whether it be an exerciser or mentally or socially, you know, involved, that's really not their thing. It's incredibly hard to start something once you have a diagnosis, period. But with something like Louis, depression and apathy are inherent in this disease. So you really have to push for So What I first recommend, if someone is hesitant or if the caregiver is expressing, my loved one is not getting off the couch, 
I don't know how to get them involved. First off, I recommend that they approach the physician and have the prescription talk with the loved one at the next appointment and literally prescribe the activity. This isn't a pill. This is your, as we call it, this is your magic bullet. Exercise is known as the magic bullet. So pharma's not going to reap a dime, but you are going to reap huge benefit. So if the physician can step forth, prescribe the activity, I think that that's step one. But let's say the individual is really struggling at being able to motivate themselves. We have kind of a strategy. First off, families really need to look at engaging their friends and encouraging them to come by and to help out with this. They can take the loved one out. They can sit there, do something as basic as look through photos with them, something to engage them. But families also need to learn how to reframe how they relate to the individual, right? One of the mistakes we see families make is that they tend to ask permission when suggesting an activity be started. We recommend that they attempt a, a slightly different approach. So move away from asking permission to making it an expectation. So I'll give you a couple of examples. First off, honey, would you like to take a walk with me? So that's question. Why don't they try, honey, here are your coat and shoes. Please join me in walking the dog. Or you could say, do you want to meet friends for lunch? Versus, wait a minute, our friends are waiting for us at your favorite restaurant. We're all really looking forward to you enjoying your favorite dish. So it engages them. It makes them part of it. And now they're going to look forward to saying, oh, I'm going to get my favorite food in addition to seeing my friends. So those are some of the strategies we, you know, we recommend. And certainly there are, in some cases, medications that can assist, certainly with areas of depression. Apathy, though, I know that I've heard from physicians is something that is very difficult to deal with. But I hope that we can keep it in the positive realm for now. Agreed. Positive and, and just even subtle changes in one's approach can be really yeah. impactful. So moving away from the clinical world for a moment, we know, of course, that the importance of research cannot be overstated. We need advances to better diagnose, understand, manage, and eventually prevent or cure these neurodegenerative diseases. What barriers to research participation do families experience? Well, first, I'd like to say that I'm a huge research advocate. My sister and I participated in numerous studies, and I continue to do so today. But I know that for many, being a research participant isn't even in their radar. So I believe with many, there's a complete lack of awareness. You know, unless you're seen at a university clinical setting, most physicians will not bring research and make the referral. Many people have a real fear of being what we term a research subject. Am I going to be a lab rat? Is this going to be painful? Or what about, do I have to travel halfway across the country to be part of a study? What about the cost incurred? I'm driving places. I've got bridge tolls. I've got parking fees, meals, hotels, if it's a multi-day study, let alone the inconvenience and disruption to normal day-to-day -day activities. 
But I really would like to encourage our listeners to consider becoming involved in research. There are various types. You know, you look and people think of it as medication trials. Well, my sister and I never participated in a medication trial. There are studies on genetics. There are cognitive studies, physical, you know, activity studies, scans, caregiver support. And some studies are a one-off. You go in one time, done. Others are short-term, maybe a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and others that are longitudinal, which could be from this point forward through the progress of the disease. There's no one-size-fits-all. There's a wide variety that people can participate in. You know, my sister and I traveled. We decided, well, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it big. So we didn't leave the West Coast, but we flew to Seattle and participated in multi-day studies there. And then we traveled around and saw the sites. So we made it an enjoyable vacation around that particular study. And what I'm very excited about is that currently there is a push globally to involve people living with dementia and their caregivers in the design and all phases of research. They refer to it as PPV-PPI, which is a crazy acronym for patient person voice and patient person involvement. And so, in fact, I had a meeting earlier today regarding that, where we are going to be working with research fellows on developing their research specific to dementia. So they know what our needs are so that they can move forward and really have an impact in our lives later on. So what I can refer people to is at the end of our presentation, there are several resource slides that will show them how to access trials and studies. That synergy between the clinical world, the research world, and the real life patient world to see those things kind of come together is really encouraging. It's long overdue and it is a very exciting time. So I'll say this is my last question, but but maybe not. You never know. <laughs> if you could pick one thing to sort of say to a healthcare provider or a clinician who works with Lewy Body, what would you like them to know about working with these patients and their families? Well, at the current time, you know, I'm going to frame it in kind of our systems within the U.S. The bulk of our healthcare systems are set up to reimburse physicians and hospitals for a specified amount of appointment time, depending upon a specified billing code that they submit for reimbursement. The problem with that is that those with Lewy body dementia and other dementias process information slower than they used to. So providers need to take time and direct questions to that individual, but wait for their response and then take separate input from the caregiver. And it could be before the appointment through recommending that they send an email in advance or something through their respective portals or during the appointment. Because I think they won't get a clear picture of current symptoms and the overall effect on the individual's daily quality of life unless they allow that time. They won't see the full emergence of what is going on. And I know from my many years in the trenches that if a medical provider listens to those who live with the disease day in and day out, there will be improved outcomes. 
Thank you for that. And for our listeners who have heard the conversation today and wanted to learn about, about this disease, would you direct them to lbda.org or, or would that be the next step they should Absolutely. do? Absolutely. Without reservation, my primary source is the Lewy Body Dementia Association. And yes, it's lbda.org. They have an incredibly dedicated and knowledgeable staff and working with some of the best minds in the field. They have a very extensive scientific advisory council comprised of physicians and researchers who are globally considered the premier LBD experts. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, this, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I particularly really enjoyed and appreciated you sharing about your father and your sister and kind of contrasting those experiences and and really the work you've done to advocate for this disease in families and also educate and raise awareness of something that's common and needs a lot of support. You know, it really means a lot to me to do this. It's affected my family so profoundly. And I kind of believe that my sister is up there kind of pushing me. This was her arena, being an advocate for those that were vulnerable in the community. She started the first day respite program in the county for people with dementia, and it was subsequently named for her. But more importantly, she also worked with immigrants. She worked with the homeless, and she would fight in Sacramento for legislation and funding. So for me to step forward, the kid's sister, it's been quite a journey. Well, hopefully all of us can be motivated to follow her example and your example and feel empowered going forward. Thank you so much, Ellen. Thank you. And thank you listeners for joining us on another episode of BrainBeat. Be part of the conversation by rating and reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and send us your comments, questions, and ideas for brain health topics you would like to hear about. We'd love to hear from you. To email us and for more information about the NAN Foundation and neuropsychology, visit nanfoundation.org. Thanks for listening and join us next time on BrainBeat.